Well, do you want to be in the Word together a little bit? Let's worship the Lord through the study of His Word, church family. I'll invite you to take your Bible then and turn with me into the New Testament book of Philippians and chapter 2 this morning, Philippians chapter 2. So if you find Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians, you know you can't be far from the book of Philippians. If you need a Bible today, just raise your hand. We can share a copy of God's Word with you. And there's a note page in your bulletin. looks like this. Grab that note page. Uh, that will be helpful for us. And church family, we are now on the back side of what was really a, a wonderful time in our church life as we celebrated Palm Sunday recently and then stepped into Passion Week and uh, had a Good Friday service time here. And then last Sunday we had the sunrise service out at the point followed by Resurrection Day services here that included a brunch and baptisms. And it was just a great, great week. Truly special time. I loved it, and many of you have expressed the same as well. So Easter has passed, and the question might be, well, what now? What now, Pastor Tim? Well, I thought perhaps that you might be where I am, a little bit reluctant to leave the wonderful truths concerning Jesus that have occupied us of late. And so for that reason... I have invited you to join me in Philippians chapter 2 today for what I suppose we could call a post-Easter affirmation, an affirmation of some of the great truths that we encounter during the resurrection celebrations that we've just shared. And as you can see from your note page, we're going to take a look this morning at the story of Jesus in five words. And our go-to place to accomplish that will be verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2 of Philippians, which reads like this, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen is right, church family. The story of Jesus in five words. And we just say, Heavenly Father, show us the story. Make it fresh for us today. And we will, we will just rejoice in it together. As part of just continuing the great resurrection themes and story that we have been sharing together. Church family, I have a story. I could summarize my story in five words. Home, salvation, call, marriage, and IBC. Home was my Jesus-loving mom and dad and my family growing up, my growing up years in Colorado and Texas and New Mexico. Salvation, well, that's when I, at the age of 12, had my eternity changed through a personal faith relationship with Jesus Christ. That was at 12. 
call is the impossible to ignore press of the Holy Spirit in my life that God, I knew from fairly early in my teen years, I just knew that God wanted me involved in some kind of kingdom advancing work with my life. That was going to be it. Vocationally, I was going to be doing something. I didn't know what, but I knew the call of God was on my life in that direction. Marriage is when God gave me an undeserved life companion in Lisa. And the word marriage includes my family, our two children, and our uh, soon-to-be four grandchildren. So that's, that's, that's the story of marriage in my life and family. And then IBC is where for almost 35 years God has privileged me to be able to learn and to grow and to pastor. Home, salvation, call, marriage, IBC. If you were to summarize your life story in just a few words, what would those words be? What words would you choose to do that? You're going to get a chance to do that before we're done perhaps today. Now, some of you would choose words that are similar maybe to mine. They are words that are filled with happiness and joy and blessing, and they're, they're, they're wonderful words. Perhaps, though, for some of you in this room, your story would have some sad or even maybe painful words attached to it. One thing is for sure, though, all of us are living our own personal story right now. We are all writing our biographies, aren't we? Every single one of us are doing that. This morning, let's see how the story of our life has everything to do with the story of Jesus' life and how his story transforms our stories. Let's take a look at that. I would like to tell you Jesus' story in five words, but actually it will not be me who does that. The Holy Spirit is going to do that through the pen of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, is really uh, the biographical summary of Jesus' life. It's his story in Seven verses and five words. Now, the, the, the larger context of this passage, and, 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 and you know, as a good student of the Word of God, we work hard here at the Bible Church to, to not just yank verses out of their place in Scripture and, and kind of take them apart. We want to know the larger context into which those verses fit. So let me give that to you just very briefly. In this moment, Paul is writing a church family in Asia Minor, in, uh, in the first century, and he's urging this church family toward greater and greater unity. Unity is such a powerful communicator of Jesus. On the night before the cross, Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, Father, make them one so the world will know that you sent me. Jesus was saying, a unified church is a powerful proclaimer of me. Father, make them one. Unite them in love for each other and love for the world. Paul knows this. And so he writes to this church family in chapter 1, verse 27. If you jump up just a little bit there into that chapter, he writes in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Is he talking about unity? He most certainly is. Christian unity, Paul would say, grows best in this this shared relationship of a church family loving one another, and that relationship then creates this unity that presents a powerful message to a, a world that doesn't know Jesus yet. And so that's precisely what Paul wants to go to now in verse 3 of chapter 2. He wants to talk about the humility and the love that create unity. He says, do nothing, verse 3, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, who could possibly serve as a better example of humility and an other's first orientation than the person of Jesus himself? And so as Paul calls for unity in the church, there spills out of this passage this amazing summary of Jesus' life story in verses 5 through 11. Many scholars think that this passage may have been the words of a first century worship song, which is why some Bible versions, maybe your version this morning, uh, has indented this particular section. It would be because those uh, writers of this particular translation that you have think this might have been the words to a song, kind of in keeping with what you'd find if you were in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, how those Psalms are indented. So if it's a song, it's telling Jesus' story in five great words. Now, the first word, as you see there on your note page, is what word? The word God. That's the first truth about Jesus that the Holy Spirit wants us to know. Jesus has been and is and always will be God. Urging his Christian friends toward greater humility that will foster greater unity, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of, say it, God. The story of Jesus begins in eternity past. Before the creation of the world, before anything else existed, Jesus' story is there. There was God. It's the mystery of the Trinity, God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are so united as to be one God, yet three distinct persons. Now, how can that be? How does that work? I don't know. I don't know how the Trinity works. And God's word doesn't feel compelled to need to explain that. It just is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. What is it like to be God? Well, it's total unity. It's harmony, it's fulfillment, it's glory and joy, and infinitely so in three persons who are one God. The Trinity have eternally enjoyed one another like we enjoy relationships. Only theirs has been the perfect relationship. Love, delight, full sharing, unselfish giving for one another, fully satisfied and complete in each other, And there's no sin, none. Something our earthly relationships have never, ever experienced is no sin. And yet here you have the holy 
unity of God. And within this triunity called the Godhead is the Son of God. His name is Jesus, the name given him by God the Father at his incarnation when he came into our world. Jesus preexisted as God in heaven as full deity, exercising all of the divine rights and privileges of being God. And that's what Paul tells us in the opening verse of, chapter, of verse 5. In fact, this isn't the only place we hear these kinds of declarations. Up on the screen, would you be willing to, church family, just read with me a few passages right off the screen together that talk to us about the deity of Jesus, him being God? Let's do that from John chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read aloud together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? Jesus. Jesus is God. John 1.1 1, 1 declares that. Colossians 1.15, together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. What is that a claim to be? God, absolutely. If we go on, in John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, you look at me, you are seeing God, right? And then in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, let's read it together. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus' story has no defined beginning because he is eternal, timeless God. And to know his story, we must never lose sight of what he was before he came into our world. There was unending praise. There was unending worship of him. No want, no need, total joy, infinite power and strength, no weaknesses, no sin, no human body with all of the limitations that you and I know so well, no need for food or water or sleep or anything else. You can think of the most perfect moment in your life. Think of the, the, the happiest you have ever, ever been, the most fulfilled or satisfied that you have ever been in your life. Jesus' past as eternal God was all of that, but magnified to infinity. That was Jesus as God. And it had been that way for him from eternity past up to the moment that he came into our world. He is God. That's the first word in his story. And then the second word in Jesus' story is what word? Humble. Verse 5 again of chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, what's the word? Humbled himself. Jesus is God. He is the, in the highest place. He's the uncaused cause of all that exists. Sovereign deity. And yet we're told here that 
in Jesus' assessment, his rights and his privileges as God were not more important to him than fulfilling the will of the Father. There was something more important to him than his own exaltation as God. He didn't count these privileges as divine rights that he had to grasp or to hold on to kind of with a a white-knuckled grip. He was willing to give them up at the Father's request. In fact, check out this conversation. Uh, We referred to it as the Christmas Eve conversation. I have preached this passage out of Hebrews chapter 10 at Christmas time because it really is a conversation that takes place between the Father and the Son prior just prior to his coming into our world here's how it goes consequently when christ came into the world that's christmas right he said sacrifice and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure and then i said behold i have come to do your will O god as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, as it is written about me in the Old Testament. That's Jesus talking. I came to do your will, a body you prepared for me. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Humble. This was Jesus' humiliation. He became a human being. Now, it may not seem that becoming a human being is humiliating, but that's because being a human being is all we've ever known, right? That's not true for Jesus. All we know is weakness, and so we sleep. All we know is hunger, and so we eat. We thirst, so we drink. We have needs of all kinds, so we work to meet those needs. All we've ever known is a world that we call home that is sin-filled and out of our control a world of frailty, a a world where friends and loved ones get sick and, and there's disease and there's sorrow and there's pain and there's death. This is our normal. Sin has made it so. It's the world that we live in every day. But it's not the realm that Jesus lived in. Jesus is God. Jesus' whole eternal past is perfection and worship and joy. To come personally as God into a world of sin and limitation and need and hurt and sorrow and death like ours, would we not call that humiliation? And he did that willingly, didn't he? Does that not not say something very profound about Jesus? Humble. How was he humbled? Well, we're told he became a servant, that he might be made in the likeness of human beings. He didn't even come as a king. He didn't come as a prince. He came as a servant. I mean, think of that, church family. The king of kings of the universe chooses to become a servant of sinful mankind. To wash the feet of sinners, literally, as we see him do in John chapter 13, on the night before he's crucified. He's washing the feet of sinful men. In fact, he's washing the feet of the one who will betray him. What do we call that? Humility. The highest takes the lowest 
place. The NIV translates this, he made himself nothing. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Love? Love for the Father? Love for us? John 3.16 says it this way, for God so, what? Loved the world, loved you and me, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Or Mark chapter 10, verse 45, here's what Jesus says. He says, for even the son of man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God, humble. But the greatest moment of Jesus' humiliation, well, that still awaits him. Here's where we encounter the third word in Jesus' story. And what word is that? Crucified. Crucified. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we see how low Jesus willingly went. Leaving the realm of heaven as God is one thing. Becoming a sinless man and a servant of sinners, well, that's one thing. But dying on a cross, taking the sinner's sin onto yourself and paying that penalty when you are innocent, that's an entirely different thing, isn't it? He humbled himself. The highest willingly became the lowest, the very lowest. How low? Even death on a cross. The cross. We say the word rather easily, sometimes flippantly. We sing about it. We wear crosses around our necks. We tattoo them on our arms in our culture. And you know what? That's probably because we've never seen anyone die on a cross. The Romans used this grisly execution method. And to them, crucifixion was such a revolting thing that they would not speak of it in polite or public company. The word cross was a, was a reprehensible and profane word. They knew what it meant. The physical experience endured by one on a cross is hard for us to even remotely begin to imagine. To die on a cross was to die an excruciatingly slow, shameful, very public, very painful death. Complete exhaustion, burning thirst, and intense effort required each time you took a breath. And all of this done as you are hanging naked in full view of your loved ones and your enemies. But beyond the physical realities, Jesus had to experience something on the cross that no one has ever experienced before or since. On the cross, Jesus, as holy, sinless God, became sin for us. He became sin for us assumed sin's penalty, and bore the full measure of God's curse upon sin. Galatians 3.13 says it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
Or how about 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake, God made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only did Jesus' own people reject him. God cursed him as he assumed the guilt and the penalty for the sins of the world. For your sin. For my sin. What makes this so devastating for Jesus is that he was the perfect, blameless, holy, sinless son of God. Sin was the polar opposite of all that he had ever been. Here in this devastatingly physical moment, God adds to Jesus' agony the spiritual and relational devastation of our massive moral guilt and lays it all on him. A crushing, overwhelming agony. How low did Jesus willingly go? He went further and lower down in anguish and misery than any human has ever gone or ever will go. And he did that for us to pay a sin debt that we could never, ever pay. And that is why, church family, that the sky, we're told in the gospel accounts, the sky went dark on crucifixion day for Jesus from noon until 3 o'clock. It went dark. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus from the cross cries out, as you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? An anguished cry. He died in darkness, literal and spiritual, bearing the sin of the world. Your sin and mine. The third word in Jesus' story is crucified. God Humble, crucified. Now, most biographies that tell the story of a person's life typically end right here. Date of death. She was born on this date. She died on this date. A few revealing words in the middle. End of biography, end of story. Right? That's how it goes. The fact that this was not the end of Jesus' story is what brings you and I here today, right? This isn't the end of the story for Jesus. The fact that it's not the end of the story for Jesus is why churches are filled all over the world today with people who love him. Is because crucified is not the last word in his story. Paul writes, verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted Any good Bible student learns as they're studying the word of God to ask whenever they encounter the word therefore, they ask a question. And what is the question that they ask? (laughs) What's the therefore, therefore, right? Every good Bible student does that. In this case, the therefore is there because it's because woven into the fabric of that one word, the word therefore is the first, the fourth word in Jesus' story. And it is the word risen. Yeah? Yeah. Therefore, God has exalted, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, how could that happen? Jesus is dead. He was crucified. How do you exalt a dead man? 
You know, people have tried to do that. Lenin's body was, was, has been lying in state in, in, under glass in Red Square since 1924. I've seen it. It doesn't look so good. <laughs> Not very exalted. When it comes to exalting dead people, Lenin is as good as we have been able to come up with. Now, fresh off of Resurrection Sunday last week, we know that Jesus' body lay in that grave from Friday evening at sundown through Saturday and through Saturday night. On Sunday morning, Jesus' followers, women, come to His tomb to complete the burial process. And here's what we read. Matthew chapter 28, verse 5. But an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said come see the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and they do that and the world has never been the same since thank god is right in john chapter 10 verses 17 and 18 here's what jesus says For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. That's the word risen. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. We would read those verses and we conclude, man, Jesus was never a victim of the evil intentions of sinful people. He was always the humble servant, the willing sacrifice. He died in keeping with his own authoritative purpose. He rose by his own authority. Never a victim. His story must include the word risen or there is no story at all, right? You wouldn't be here if this fourth word was not in his life story. This the Apostle Paul will confirm when he says to the Corinthian church family, 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. God the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sin and the resurrection is proof that He did that, that He accepted that offering. Holy God was pleased with the once and for all sin offering that is found in Jesus, complete victory over sin, death, and the grave and made certain by the empty tomb. Jesus is risen. And we would say risen indeed. Yeah. All of that brings us then to the fifth word in the story of Jesus. If you flip that little note page over. And what word is that, church? That's the word exalted. 
The resurrection is just the first step in Jesus' exaltation. The exaltation continued 40 days later as Jesus ascends into heaven and God the Father seats him in in heaven's highest place of honor, which is at his right hand. He's given a name and honored by that name. And it is a name above every other name in the universe. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, words you know well. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Exalted. This new level of exaltation is not because Jesus' nature as God or his eternal place within the Trinity had somehow changed and he'd become more God. It's not that. He never changed from what he was before he came than what he was after he came. He came, but he humbled himself and he laid aside those divine prerogatives for a moment. And then there's this extreme exaltation now of Jesus by God because he is now he now has a new identity he's not just god he's the god man that's different isn't it the god man not only has he received back all of the glory that he had before coming into our world but now having come in human likeness having gone to the lowest possible place of sin and the cross and the grave and then risen victoriously over all of that, God the Father is pleased to bestow on His Son the supreme name of Lord. Lord. Which implies deity, of course, but it mostly centers on authority. Sovereign, uncontestable, unchallengeable, unassailable authority. Jesus is Lord. The entire intelligent universe will one day bow in recognition of Jesus, the Lord, who is over all created things. The angels are going to bow, aren't they? They're bowing now. All saved by the blood of Jesus, human beings will bow to Jesus. All the God-denying, Jesus-rejecting persons in all of history will bow to Jesus. The demonic realm of God-hating spirits will bow to Jesus. And even Satan himself will bow to Lord Jesus. Because every knee will bow. Either the knee will bow willingly and blessedly, or it will bow unwillingly and reluctantly. But every knee will bow. Because Jesus, you are Lord. Yeah? Yeah. The Apostle Peter declares, 1 Peter 3.21, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been what? Subjected to him. The writer of Hebrews points out, Hebrews 1.13, And to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies what? 
footstool for your feet. You are Lord. You're exalted, Jesus. Later in chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews will say, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God as King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you want an eye-opening view of Jesus in his new place of exaltation, boy, just tomorrow in your devotional time, just, just hang out for a few moments in Revelation chapter 1. You will see Jesus in a way that perhaps you've not really thought about him before. Exalted. In the end, Jesus is back where he began, isn't he? But with an even greater honor, exalted, enthroned, worshipped now by many as the God-man, as Savior and Lord, but one day acknowledged by all, every knee bent, every head bowed. Jesus' story in five words. God, humble, crucified, risen, exalted. What is your story in four or five words? What's your story? We all have a story. I shared mine earlier. Sixty years in five words. What's your story? And then here's the really important question. The most important question of all. Is there a place where your story and Jesus' story intersect? Is there a place where that happens? There's a place in my story where Jesus' story intersects my life when I was 12 years old. And I am so, so eternally grateful that that is true, that Jesus' story intersects my story. Do you have that? Do you have that place in your story where you and Jesus meet? The implications of Jesus' story are massive. His story means God was here with us in this world. God lived our lives sinlessly. He understands our struggles fully. He entered into our judgment personally and he defeated our sin and death completely. His story means this life is not all there is. His story means we matter to him. You matter to him. I matter to him. What happens to us matters to God. Jesus' story means we matter to God. The highest became the lowest so that by becoming low, we might reach the highest. Amen? And here is his promise to anyone who will allow his story to intersect with their story. Out of Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, what's the next word? Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Eternally saved. Sin forgiven and with him forever. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Does your story and Jesus' story intersect? All will confess the lordship of Jesus. They will. Every single knee will bow. How much better to make that confession and bow that knee from a place of grateful, worshipful, loving, willful faith. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for this special journey with you into the place of the person who is our Savior and our Lord. Jesus, how we thank you for these five words that that really share your story with us. God, humble, crucified, raised, and exalted. Oh, how we thank you for reaching into our time, into our world, stepping into our world and dying our death that we might have your life, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. In just a moment, we're going to gather around this table and we're going to remember what you did for us. How we thank you for this incredible gift. God humbly dying in our place so that we could share his place with him. Thank you. If you're here today and you have yet to settle the question of who Jesus is in your life, May today be the day and now be the time when his story and your story intersect and your eternity is transformed, changed forever through confession of faith in him. If you're not sure how that should happen, boy, seek out a friend that you might know here today. Pull me aside. Pull Brandon or one of the others aside and and let's talk about that. Don't leave today without your story and Jesus' story being shared together. We love you, Lord. We really do love you here at IBC. But only because you loved us first. All glory be to you, exalted King Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. amen.